The detective had, you know, some information from her, but he was trying to put together all of these pieces for, you know, 20 plus victims, um, some of which he just had like a social media handle that was old, or he had like one photo. In order to build this case, the detective utilized Traffic Jam a lot, and he was able to put together that case in a handful of months. Um, that is really the type of um, cases that we look to help, where we can use AI to save time to pull together disparate pieces of information, um, and then that can ultimately save the time that it takes to get to the victim recovery, as well as, you know, hopefully arrest and prosecution of the criminals who are trafficking them. This is Until All Are Free. I'm your host, Preston Goff. Amidst the many conversations surrounding the way that the world has experienced dramatic change in light of the COVID-19 pandemic is the topic of human trafficking and exploitation. As more and more aspects of human life have taken place online in the past year and a half, so too have criminal industries like human trafficking increased their online presence. But there's good news. There are fantastic organizations leading the way in the identification of traffickers and victims. Emily Kennedy is a co-founder and advisor to Marinus Analytics. It's an artificial intelligence company that's focused on protecting the vulnerable and ending systemic exploitation by serving those who work on the front lines of public safety. Now they do this by developing technology that disrupts human trafficking, child abuse, and cyber fraud. Emily previously served as President Emeritus, and she's been recognized and celebrated as a Forbes 30 Under 30, a Toyota Mother of Invention, and one of Entrepreneur's Most Powerful Women. And so I'm so very excited that she joined us on this episode of Until All Are Free. I had the honor of talking with Emily about the development of Marinus' flagship AI-powered platform, Traffic Jam, which saved law enforcement an estimated 70,000 investigative hours in 2020 alone. Now, we also talked about her journey with the issue of human trafficking, that is, how she first heard of it and what motivated her to take part in the fight against it. We talked about the podcast that she hosts, and we also chatted about what healthy nonprofit leadership can look like amidst the demands of our modern world. Well, I'm excited to be sitting across from Emily Kennedy, who um, is really just a prolific leader in the anti-human trafficking movement. I'm really excited to be talking to you today about uh, Marinus Analytics and specifically this um, just really revolutionary tool called Traffic Jam. But you're also a podcast host of the Empower podcast, so you obviously wear lots of hats. Um, But I'm excited to talk to you specifically today about your journey through the anti-trafficking movement and specifically um, your role in this artificial intelligence program called Traffic Jam. But I wonder if you could just start by introducing yourself in your own words and uh, telling me a little bit about who you are and your background to the issue, um, your your own journey. Sure. Yeah, you kind of covered it. Like you said, I'm an entrepreneur and podcaster um, and co-founder of this company called Marinus Analytics, um, and we're 
most well-known for our flagship software AI tool called Traffic Jam. Um, and it's basically an AI-based tool that looks at certain uh, places online where victims of sex trafficking are advertised online for sex and uh, gathers that data and then uses AI to analyze it to find patterns that can help law enforcement actually find and recover victims as well as dismantle organized criminal networks. So uh, that's a lot, yeah. um, as I'm sure you you. You can tell, um, but kind of how it started um, was at Carnegie Mellon University when I was a student. Um, as far as like where did the software come from, it really started with a student research project, my research project. Um, and the funny thing about this story is that I was an undergrad humanities student studying public policy. I uh, didn't have a business background, didn't have a tech background, but it was more of seeing a problem and then getting introduced to a solution. So um, around that time, around like 2010, 2011, um, the internet had become a much bigger hotspot for sex trafficking in the U.S. Yeah. And I started to learn about that. And then I got introduced to great researchers and people in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon who were deep in machine learning and AI. And when we connected, I got kind of thrown into this world of what is AI, what is machine learning, and how can it help solve this problem? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could walk me back a little bit, because in order to know that the solution might fit, um, you had to have a deep understanding of the issue. So I wonder if you could just tell me, like, when was it that you began to first, like, really become aware of how pervasive the issue of human trafficking is? Um, and how did that kind of change your trajectory from, from there on? For sure. Yeah, so one moment in particular was when I was traveling through Eastern Europe on a missions trip at 16 years old and um, was just really, you know, sheltered kid and um, grew up in a great family and all of that. And I was traveling through Eastern Europe and it was somewhere around like Serbia, Macedonia area. We were just driving down through a bunch of the different countries. And we came across this really tiny town, you know, one stoplight town, and there was all these children begging on the street, which is not too uncommon. Um, but there was something about that situation that really seemed off to me, that really struck me. They like were pressing up against our car when we stopped at the stoplight trying to wash the car windows, and they just seemed really desperate. And I didn't know what it was, but it just seemed wrong. <laughs> Something seemed wrong. And so after we passed through that town, I asked my friend who's from Eastern Europe, what's going on there? And he said, well, those children are most likely trafficked by the Russian mob to big on the street. They're probably orphans. And all of the money that they make, they have to take back and give to the mob. And I didn't even know of the term of human trafficking at that point, yeah. but that's what it was. And so, um, that really stuck in my heart for a long time. So, you know, 16, and then it wasn't, uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's just this like overnight kind of situation where you like learn about a problem and then you cha change the world, you know, one sure. plus one equals two. And it was not at all. So back then the internet was not as pervasive as it is now. That was like, you know, dial-up days or whatever <laughs> for those of us who remember that. So then coming to college, I kind of had it in my head that I want my job to be fighting human trafficking, but I don't know what that looks like. I had no idea other than I thought, well, I'm good at reading and writing and arguing, so maybe I'll go to law school. Yeah. <laughs> and so like many of us have that thought. And so I kind of 
went through college with that idea. I was um, studying ethics, history, and public policy. I went so far as to uh, take the LSAT. I basically went as far as everything but applying to law school. And by the time it got to around my senior year, I just felt like I, you know, we're at a point in our time in the U.S., I think, where you can't just go to law school and, like, hope it works out, you know, like, oh, you're set for life. It's very competitive. You kind of have to know what you want to do with it. And what I couldn't figure out was, and my parents, like, instilled in me very much that if you do this, this is your debt you're taking on. Like, yeah, be smart right. about this. And I couldn't figure out, you know, if my goal is to go work for a nonprofit or something, how am I going to pay off that money? You know, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I didn't, um, I I felt like, well, I can take a year and decide, yeah. you know. Think I don't about have to it decide a little right bit now. longer. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. And so um, I did. And then that was around the time that my senior project was taking off. It became a project at the lab. And then ultimately we spun it into our company in 2014. So did not have that plan uh, when I first started, but it was kind of just like learning about the issue, staying really focused, pretty focused, I would say, and passionate because these days there's so many causes that sure. you can care about, yeah. but if you care about all of them, you're probably going to do nothing about it. So that for me, I think was really key, like picking one thing and really focusing on it. Yeah. It, in those days when you were beginning to like hone in on your senior project that would eventually give birth to Marinus Analytics. Was did you did you start in on that season thinking like artificial intelligence has to play a role here? Like what was the process of unearthing that? Mm. It was very much a kind of like its own investigative journey. So um, I have a friend, a good friend of mine, Jessica Dickinson Goodman, who went on to work for a Polaris project and work in this space as well. And it was one point was just over lunch at school. We were brainstorming, well, there's all this data online. Detectives aren't really making use of it because they don't have the tools. But theoretically, you know, if there's a, a, a victim who's traveled across different cities and states, um, whose trafficker uses, say, five burn phone numbers, there's got to be a way to connect those dots. And kind of thinking of it more from the human perspective, like if if it was enough data that I as a human or any detective could read, say, 20 pages of ads, see the commonalities, and then, um, you know, solve the case, then that would be really helpful. But the problem was that around that time, we were seeing around 20,000 new ads every day in the US, and this is just um, classified ads in the sex industry. And uh, nowadays, we're seeing around 300,000 new ads every day just in the US. Um, Traffic Jam recently surpassed half a billion data points. And so it's impossible for humans to process that. That workload is just immense. It's like, yeah, it's literally impossible. And so um, it was starting with that kind of problem. And then when I went and pitched this idea to the director of one of the labs in the Robotics Institute, because my humanities advisor said, you need to go get a technical advisor for this if you want to. I can't help you with this side of the project. And so he gave me a list of names. He said, go pitch your idea to these different professors. And this one who I pitched emailed me, responded to my email in like four hours. He said, come in to, you know, tomorrow and let's talk. And he was able to say, um, and he was a 
he is still actually, and he's one of my uh, my third co-founder. Um, he is still the director of the lab. He had the machine learning perspective to say, oh, we're using algorithms to do nuclear threat detection, epidemic detection, and food safety, and other socially impactful projects. And so he said, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Emily, you know, if you can get some data, um, we can actually start to help you look at the patterns and- Test um, application. Test the application. You mentioned something about, um, you know, helping law enforcement to like manage the immensity of the number of data points out there, and I think for so many people who, um, whose surface level like interaction with tech and AI in the case investigation comes informed through Hollywood esque like pictures of people like sitting on the backside of devices and like plugging in a photo and it like scanning in live time across the entire world and like finding exactly where the perpetrator's at. Um, I think if for those of us that have that perspective, it's like, what do you mean law enforcement don't have the tech? Um, how could they not have the tech? Like who has the tech if law enforcement <laughs> doesn't have the tech? Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that. Like it, it seems like um, the primary or a primary like goal of Marinus Analytics was connecting technology with law enforcement. Um, and yeah, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, unfortunately, law enforcement, even at the highest federal levels, was not as advanced as I had hoped. There were actually many times where, um, and we've worked with everything from your local police department to your top federal agency, um, I went in thinking, oh, of course you are doing this already. You have the resources and you have smart people. And no, there was a lot of times when it was like, no, we're not doing this right now for whatever reason. It could be bureaucracy. It could be whatever. So um, we found that there was a huge pain point and a lot of opportunity for us to come in and help around, I think it was 2018 when Backpage.com was shut down and the heads of Backpage were arrested and uh, the FBI took down the website and all that. Backpage used to be the hot spot, number one hot spot by far for this activity in the U.S. And when that happened, I had like special agents calling me like, what do I do for this case? You know, I was tracking this girl on Backpage now. It's gone. All the data is gone. What am I going to do? And we had the ab ability to pivot a lot more quickly than a lot of other organizations. So, yeah, I mean, it's Traffic Jam started with a lot more simple technology. Um, and I can definitely explain. Yeah. the. I'll, I'll explain the two extremes. So, the simplest and one of the first use cases of Traffic Jam was say you have um, a detective finds an ad or maybe comes across a victim or even gets a uh, missing had, persons photo. Exactly. Like a missing persons either photo or um, an outreach from a family saying, you know, our daughter's missing and we think she's being trafficked. She, you know, was talking to this guy and, uh, you know, we think that he's a trafficker and she's being advertised online. Um, so they might say, well, here's my daughter's cell phone number and we, th we think she was using those in ads. Well, the problem is that if the trafficker is smart enough, he or she is going to 
change that phone number pretty dang quickly uh, to their own burn phone number or some other form of contact information, sometimes an app or something else. And so if you're just starting with that phone number and that's the only lead you have, you might not know any future ads that are posted of this same person with a different number or any past ads. You don't really have a holistic view of what's going on in the case. And so one of the first things that we built in Traffic Jam was the ability to just connect the dots and we call it a trail because it's basically showing a trail of activity. Um, And so with a click of a button, it will pull together um, other ads that share the same, you know, phone number images, just simple, pretty simple, but not simple when you're talking about thousands or millions of data points, but you understand conceptually what it means. Not just a point in time, but being able to look across, across time Exactly, um, yeah. exactly. And see, you know, either the historical information, which is really important for building a case um, or doing interviews or whatever, and current activity. So again, you might have an old phone number, be like, well, dead end, you know, this is a couple months old. Uh, but if you can actually connect the dots and say, oh, she's in this other city now, that's really important too, because time is of the essence. You know, traffickers usually know to move their victims pretty frequently across cities and states, keep them disoriented. They won't know the local area. They won't feel comfortable to reach out for help if they need it. Um, And so that's pretty common. So having that ability to connect the dots is really important. So that's kind of one of the simplest um, applications. And then Going to the other extreme, the most uh, kind of complex is one that we um, deployed more recently in Traffic Jam. And it's basically um, kind of like a social network analysis that can use a lot more data points to um, identify organized crime groups in the data. So we had a case, um, it's actually on our website under articles, it's uh, called Pittsburgh Partnerships because we worked with a lot of organizations in Pittsburgh to uh, make this case happen. But basically we um, started just manually identifying a group in our data that we identify this, we said, you know, this does look like a large organized crime group. We sent it to some of our law enforcement partners. They grew that case and it turned out to result in um, the takedown of this transnational organized crime group. Um, They did great work on it. Again, more details at that article if anyone wants to read it. But um, we thought, okay, that was kind of manually put together, like from an analyst perspective. But what if we could automate that? Because there's got to be a lot more patterns and even bigger groups potentially in uh, the data. And this could be anything from like you know, brothels to massage parlors parlors that are trafficking women in internationally. Um, So usually a lot bigger groups. And so um, we implemented this new thing called kind of, we're calling it like advanced trail, but uh, if anyone wants the techie language, it's basically a graph database. But what it does is it allows a lot faster search and faster connections of larger webs of activity, if that makes sense. So The idea is that um, detectives can start with, again, a little nugget of information and then use this tool to build out their case a lot more quickly um, and to see how the connections are made across, you know, phone numbers and emails, things that are really important when you're talking about, um, like, organized crime groups or, you know, money laundering or whatever. Those cases involve a lot more of that, like, intense Complex transportation and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um, that is kind of the extreme of the complexity of the AI that that Traffic Jam works with. Can you tell me a little bit about like what 
what are some of the patterns that um, the tool can pick up on or like things that it can identify that um, have often like proved to be helpful in identifying like victims of human trafficking and like rescuing them? Yeah, for sure. So it's kind of along the lines of um, the things that I mentioned as far as starting with one lead and being able to build that out or building out a case and being able to um, corroborate evidence that you're hearing from a victim interview or a perpetrator interview or whatever. Um, So there's, yeah, there's a lot of different types of cases, but one really powerful one was a detective who uh, we've worked with for a number of years and he works undercover, so I won't say much about him, but he's a fantastic detective and he basically looks for these children as if they were his own. He's really, really fantastic and just kind of leads the best practices of what human trafficking detectives do. So he got an outcry from a woman who was a victim of this really violent trafficker. Um, And I won't go into details, but uh, the details that the detective shared with me is the most violent situation that I've ever heard, um, which is saying a lot. And so um, this trafficker ended up having, I think it was like, over 20 different victims over a number of years. He had threatened the girls and been, you know, physically and uh, emotionally abusive to them. And so one of his victims came forward and said, you know what, Uh, I need help. I want to get out from under this guy. And he's, you know, exploiting minor victims as well, underage victims. And so the detective had, you know, some information from her, but he was trying to put together all of these pieces for, you know, 20 plus victims, um, some of which he just had like a social media handle that was old or he had like one photo. So the ability to do like image search and phone number search on especially historical data. I mean, that's another key is that um, Traffic Jam archives that data. So rather than just what is online right now, the ability to look back in the past uh, is really helpful too because like I said, this, uh, this trafficker had a pretty extensive history of exploitation. And um, in order to build this case, the detective utilized Traffic Jam a lot, and he was able to put together that case in a handful of months instead of, like, the two years it would have potentially taken to actually pull together that case. At which point all of the victims would have been moved. Right. Data points are changing. he could have moved or who knows. I mean, it's it's very frustrating work in that way, the timing of it. But he, because he was able to put together the case quickly and put together a strong case, he was able to uh, actually prosecute. He was part of the prosecution of that trafficker um, and he got a huge uh, prison sentence and now is in prison. So um, that is really the type of um, cases that we look to help where we can use AI to save time to pull together disparate pieces of information, um, to have an archive of data that can help for historical cases, um, and then that can ultimately save the time that it takes to get to the victim recovery as well as, you know, hopefully arrest and prosecution of the criminals who are trafficking them. Yeah. Um, and, and just in terms of like collective impact over the years, like I think I saw in 2019 alone, like 3,900 kids were or, or victims of, of trafficking were identified using the tool. 
Um, I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think it was 300 in that year, and then I think 3,000 the year before. Um, The numbers are on our website, but um, another recent number that I like to point to is, uh, again, to the time savings. So we estimated about 70,000 investigative hours saved in 2020 alone, which is yeah, it's a huge amount and enables the detectives to actually work hopefully on more cases um, to get more cases done because they are usually very overloaded. They might even be juggling multiple different types of cases. And so anything we can do to save them time is is really good, too. I want to shift gears a little bit sure. and I want to talk um, about your role as a podcast host um, and as a businesswoman and just want to hear about, yeah, the podcast that you're a part of, the vision behind it and your what you kind of hope um, to be like putting out into the world with it. Um, sure. So yeah. Yeah. So I host the Empower podcast. Um, we're almost to three years. We just hit uh, past 100 episodes. So yeah. Congratulations. I'm super excited. Yeah. Thank you. That was one of my big goals starting a podcast was I'm like, I don't want to just do it and burn out. I want it to go uh, far, you know, go over a long time. So the reason that I started it back in yeah 2018 was I... Being a a woman in like non-traditionally female spaces like tech and entrepreneurship and law enforcement, um, I just always really love the chances that I got to meet other female entrepreneurs. Um, But I also have worked remotely my whole career. So, uh, you know, my company was in Pittsburgh, but usually I wasn't based there. I would travel there frequently. So it just was harder for me to develop like a ecosystem of other women in that space who I could like learn from and lean on and it I think before I started the podcast it started with a desperate LinkedIn post just saying (laughs) tag your favorite female entrepreneur I need to connect with more of them you know (laughs) so that was like the first step Um, but I would meet many people at conferences or different places. And it was also this feeling, uh, because I do interview men as well, but it was also this feeling of, man, I kind of want to like ask you out for coffee to get to know you more and hear more about your work. But like, I just met you. Yeah. So if you have a podcast and you do that, it's more like natural. Yeah. You can just say, hey, you want to come on? Come on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then it's like a win-win. And they're like, usually they say, of course. And so, um, yeah, my goal was just to interview other CEOs and entrepreneurs and founders. Um, so not just of uh, companies, but nonprofits. Um, so usually for every interview, there's Um, an intersection of either like entrepreneurship, tech, or social impact. Um, So I've interviewed, you know, everything from CEOs to founders to um, my friend Mick, who's the, who was the head of the Homeland Security Blue campaign, which is their human trafficking campaign that you've probably all seen in airports. Airports, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so. I can picture the ad in Denver airport right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just people who are, solving problems and changing the world, basically. Um, and so our conversations range from everything to like, how did, how the heck did you do this? Why did you found your company or nonprofit? To uh, lately, it's been more topics for my guests as well as myself around like burnout, especially for social impact founders where you kind of feel like you, it, it's almost right for you to sacrifice your 
own life on the altar of your mission. And I, I would say I probably believed that when I first started. I just thought I will do anything to make this happen. It does not matter what it takes. Um, and then, you know, getting three years into it, five years into it, now about 10 years into it, um, I've come to realize the benefit of, like, taking care of your mental health and having boundaries and having things outside of your work that you do and making sure or kind of keeping tabs on is my identity my work 100%. Maybe that's not healthy. So just uh, talking with people and doing some solo episodes myself on that topic of like, you know, if you burn out, you're not going to be helping anybody if you really want to help people, right? So how do you do work that you care about long term without uh, kind of sacrificing your life to that um, in a way that's unhealthy. So that's yeah. some of the stuff we talk about. Yeah, that's <laughs> so good. Um, so 100 episodes, if, mm-hmm. if anybody wants to join in and listen, give us a few that you recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know you love all out. of them, and that's totally yes. fair. But like choosing your favorite child, Preston. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, let, me, let me just open it real quick so I can refresh my memory on some recent ones. So one really great one. I mean, they're all great, I think. But one in particular, episode 98, Entrepreneurship is Just Solving Problems with Courtney Williamson. This was with a friend of mine and founder who uh, founded a company to solve uh, issues related to people who have Parkinson's. Her mom uh, had Parkinson's and actually passed away from Parkinson's, and that motivated her to build a hardware product to help uh, the quality of life of people with Parkinson's. And so um, I love that interview because of her and what she does, but also we talk about like building a leadership mindset and how to maintain mental health as a founder. So she talks about like things like focus and, you know, kind of decluttering your, your mental space and things like that, that were really helpful to me. So that's a great one. Love it. So the empower podcast, um, anywhere podcasts are, I'm sure. Yes. Wherever you find your podcasts. Awesome. Um, so just on this note of, um, you know, setting boundaries, healthy leadership, uh, healthy practices, you're in a, a midst of a like major transitional time in yes. life. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, like what your role looks like um, with Marinus Analytics right now. Um, what the future holds for you, or at least on the horizon, um, (laughs) that kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. So um, I am in the middle of a big life transition. I'm currently nine months pregnant (laughs) with our first child, a little boy. We're very excited. Congratulations. We have a uh, 10-week-old. That's right. Congrats to you. Thanks. Amazing. They'll have to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a big life transition, but I also um, kind of had the sense for uh, a bit that um, I myself was kind of in a mental transition, you know, thinking about um, burnout and topics of just, you know, I think it's good to step back no matter how successful you are, how much people are giving you accolades. You need to step back for yourself and say, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Yeah. You know, what is not that the perp- your purpose in life is everything, but I think it is important to be intentional and not just float along this path, even though it's a path that I sort of forged for myself with God's direction. Obviously, it wasn't all me, but like it was a path that I chose intentionally. But I think it's good to step back every now and then and 
reevaluate. So uh, for me, it was a lot of realizing that a lot of stress comes with being not only a founder, but now I consider myself a small business owner. You know, our yeah. company is like seven years old, so it's not cute to call it a startup anymore, yeah, I guess. Sure. And um, so started to think about like, what am I called to do? And you know, how do your seasons change in your life? I mean, that's just something that happens. And so after a lot of prayer, a lot of talking with my husband and family and friends about like, what, what is this time in my life now? You know, and the way that I've come to see it is that the last 10 years are really characterized by this like hustle and, you know, staying up late and doing anything to make this thing happen and just a lot of commitment and a lot of hustle and hard work. Um, But I think we also tend to idolize that in our culture. And like I said, you know, burnout and other negative things come with that. And so I feel like I've been moving into this time in my career where um, I really want to focus on my strengths and I want to kind of dial back some things too because bringing a kid into the world, you know, it's a big change. And I wanted to kind of make some space for it. I just didn't want to um, juggle too many things because I know that if you do take on too much, something probably multiple things will fall through the cracks, but you don't get to have a say in what that is, yeah, right? It's just yeah. whatever you forget about or whatever. Yeah, you, you yield know. that control. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to just be as intentional as I could about it. So um, I have recently transitioned out of my role as president and co-founder of Marinus Analytics into more of an advisory role. So I'll stay on the board as a board member, remain as an owner, um, and still be involved in advising the strategic direction and vision and higher level things. Um, but moving out of that day-to-day role. So to kind of open up some time, um, I don't have a perfect roadmap for uh, what I want to do next in addition to the vision side of Marinus and the high-level support there. Um, But I do know some things that I enjoy, and I also feel I'm moving into a time when I want to focus on my strengths. Um, Because, again, that last 10 years was like, you're doing things you're really bad at because nobody's there to do it. You step into your weaknesses and there's a benefit to that too. Uh, But I think now just focusing on my strengths, which are, you know, speaking about the issue, um, being involved in the human rights side of things, because a lot of my work um, in the past, especially recently, has been more like business and operations and strategy. So taking the things that I've learned from that, but uh, maybe pivoting in other ways to still stay involved in the human trafficking space. So it could be working with nonprofits. It could be working on, you know, related projects. Um, it could be a little bit broader than human trafficking could not be. Um, so I'm kind of open to yeah, new stuff that. in that area. And, uh, and then also just focusing on my podcast. Um, it's something that has taken a lot of commitment to keep up with for the last almost three years. And there's a lot that I want to do with it. And I haven't had, honestly, the mental creative space to like go beyond maintenance there. And I really want to do that because I love doing it. It's just so fun. And every time I get to like interview someone, it brings me so much joy. And I just feel like this is what I should be doing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so um, that's something I'll definitely be continuing. um, So people can check that out for uh, usually about weekly episodes. Um, So yeah, kind of just focusing in those areas, you know, seeing what God brings, what life brings and uh, yeah, enjoying this new journey. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, 
I, I know we talked earlier, but I just love the open-handedness of that posture um, to say like, hey, like I, yes, like this past season, like I, I leaned in, I learned new things, I stayed up late, I had the grit to push through, um, but it's okay to step back now and to like, to recognize the goodness of that season for what it was and to recognize the goodness of the, like the changing and the transition in this, in this, this season for what it is. Um, it's really uncommon to see that amongst leaders um, in all spaces, but especially in the nonprofit space. Um, and I just think it's such a great example for for all of us, but especially leaders of, of nonprofits. Um, Thank you. So, it's yeah. very. I appreciate that because it's very hard for me. I always like to have the plan, want to know what's going to happen. But something I realized recently is so many of the best things in my life were not things that I ever planned or ever expected. And you do have to make space for those things. Otherwise, you'll miss it. So like Ferris Bueller said, life happens fast. If you don't look around once in a while, you might miss it. So Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Emily, it is um, just a delight. And it's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you, to hear um, about the work of Miranus Analytics and Traffic Jam, but also to just hear um, your heart as a leader in the space. And um, we're just excited to, to continue to, to see what you're up to moving forward. Um, for our listeners, we'll make sure to link to your podcast um, and we'll share um, details about the, the Traffic Jam tool on our website as well. So make sure to go to thexisfor.com and, and find links to that. But yeah, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, many thanks to Emily Kennedy for joining us on this episode of Until All Are Free. Since the recording of this interview, Emily and her husband welcomed a healthy baby boy into the world. All the love to you all from the Exodus Road family. We've included links to Marinus Analytics and Traffic Jam, as well as the Empowered podcast in our show notes. Until All Are Free is a podcast by the Exodus Road. We are an organization of action, and we're bringing about systemic and holistic change in the fight against human trafficking through our three core programs, Traffic Watch Academy, Search and Rescue, and Beyond Rescue. Learn more and take action with us today at theexodusroad.com. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Preston Goff. Special thanks to City of Sound for their generous gift of the music you've heard on the intro and outro of this episode. Thanks for listening.